You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. You especially see it, it goes back to our cell phone situation. You know, when you start to think about this, you have somebody who is going to have a telephone conversation with an important client about an important matter. And what what I did early and would still do today is not only would that call be of course, would be scheduled, but I would be in an environment that worked for that call if it was at all possible to do so. And so preferably, I'm going to be in my office, in the place in my office where I do telephone, which is different than the place in my office where I write or where I do bookkeeping. And that person's file is going to be in front of me, and maybe I made some notes on a 4 by 6 card, and I've got a glass of water, and, you know, I'm ready to go. And now we have somebody making that important call or taking that important call as an interruption, and they're taking it on their cell phone while they're peeing at the urinal. Well, how effective can they possibly be? They're in the wrong environment and in the wrong place to do that particular job. So it's reflecting on what's happening is because they're in the wrong environment, often they make the wrong decisions. Well, you're going to get bad results, of course. I mean, you wouldn't... Let's assume, for the sake of conversation, let's assume it's a phone call that has to do with making a sale. Well, you and I both sell from the front of the room. So would we round up an audience of really good prospects, take them in a restroom, pitch them while we pee in front of them? Um, You know? That's a pretty bad visual, Dan. Well, but I mean, seriously. You know, or tell them all, hey, jog along with me as we run through the airport, and I'll deliver my sales pitch to you, running backwards as best I can, because i got to catch a flight in eight minutes. But that's what people do now with, their, with the telephone part of their business. And, and let me also say this. Uh, you know, cell phones is oftentimes the every other word plan. Yeah. So half the time that you're on the cell phone, it's can you hear me now? Yeah, of course. And I mean that that commercial on TV. Can you hear me now? But I I'm almost embarrassed to call a client on a cell phone just because of that. I mean, can I afford to pick up a regular line and call him? Well, or her? But, but again, if you're doing it while you're walking through the parking lot, um, I, I mean, I've overheard. I, I've been in the supermarket and seen the guy by himself with two toddlers in the cart with him. And he's on the cell phone, and it's pretty quickly apparent he's not talking to his wife. He has not called home to find out what kind of ketchup to get. That goes on a lot, by the way, but that's a whole other conversation. But he's on the phone having a business conversation while pushing a shopping cart, getting mustard, and dealing with two toddlers. Now, how, how good can this possibly be? Because your brain is being occupied by other things. You're going to do much better if, again, you put yourself in the right physical and psychological environment for each important thing that you do. 
Okay, how about uh, we talk about some of the tools that you use in managing yourself and your time. Um, I got a list here that I wrote down from all the tools I found throughout all of your works. Um, maybe there's some other ones you want to talk about, but first let me just give you the list and we'll talk about them separately. Um, the first one was storyboard and then list itself, daily activity chart, schedule, conversation planner, and facts. So let's Let's go with first the storyboard. What, how does that tool help you manage your time? I'll zip through the list with you. One caveat first, and that is that my advice to people is to experiment with and find tools that work for them. And um, different strokes for different folks. There's things that, that I see other people use very effectively that don't work for me, like an appointment book or a PDA. Um, and I see other, and vice versa. So, as you said, this is this is the stuff I use. But the most important thing is get some tools, find some tools, uh, experiment with some things, and find those that work for you. The the the, the storyboard. Um, I've had them off and on over the years, literally up on a wall, with one or more walls devoted to them. Um, you might want to explain what that is. I think some people might not know what a storyboard is. Yeah, there are portable versions too, and 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 I'm experimenting now with a new portable version uh, that a company called Allevenger has. Uh, but basically, the storyboard is um, it comes from the movie industry, and it's how you block out and plan a, a movie or a television show or a commercial. Um, it, it, but it's become a planning tool, and it came out of Disney um, for that purpose. Uh, Mike Bantz calls it displayed thinking. And essentially, it's just a piece of corkboard, or like I now have, in, instead of cork, I have this big green rolled-out sticky thing that you don't need tax for. And you use 3 by 5 cards, or 3 by 5 cards cut in half, or 4 by 6 cards, different sizes and colors, and essentially you're putting one idea or one task or one piece of a puzzle on each piece of card and then arranging them on the board, and what the board allows you to do is easily rearrange and rearrange and rearrange and move things from do, doing, done, or Al to Mary to Bob. Um, it allows you to move it around, and it allows you then to see it all in front of you. Again, going back to our whole conversation about how the subconscious works, and it works pictorially um, more than it does anything else. And so a uh, simple example, if you, like our business, if you're going to put on a seminar, then you might storyboard the whole seminar. And so your vertical columns, you might have a column for hotel contract, and you might have a column for physical environment and decor, and a column for staff, and a column for what's going to be sold at the seminar, and a column for speakers, and a column for meal functions, and on and on and on. And so now under each one of these, has, you think of something that you need to have in the contract. Like, i got to remember to have bar stools in the front of the room because I want to sit on a bar stool, and they don't normally provide that. One little card gets 
three bar stools written on it, and it gets stuck up there under contract. And anytime you think of something, if you keep some of these cards with you at all times, you can jot them down, and now you're sticking it up there and gradually putting it in order. And, for example, now when it comes time to do the memo about everything that needs to be in the contract, it's all arranged up there on the wall in the correct order, and you can take down all the cards and go in and type up or hand them to somebody who types up the memo about the contract. In some environments, there's more than one person involved in planning a project, and this allows everybody to contribute without having meetings. Because I can walk in and look at your storyboard planning this seminar and know what's going on. And I can think, oh, geez, she missed this. Or, hey, maybe we can do that. And I could write a little card and stick it up there in its appropriate position. And the portable ones, uh, the displayed thinking pads that some people listening to the call will have from Mike, from Mike Vance, the problem with those are just like lists. They're, they're, they're better than nothing, but you can't move the stuff around. All you're doing is putting ideas in little squares. The new one I'm fooling around with that I got from a catalog company called Levenger is like a vinyl, you know, like a legal pad holder. Right. But it's got little pockets in it. It stands little up. little cards fit in. And so you can move the cards around. Does it stand up? No. So I at least it would, but... Okay. Because I know both of you and I are extremely visual. Yeah. And if we file things away, they get oh, lost. Hopeless. I mean, I can't find anything that's once it's filed. If it's not taped up around my office, I'm lost. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I use this sometimes to plan a given project. I have it for the calendar year of all the big stuff. Um, and um, so that's a tool I use. Um, I'm a big list guy. And, again, you'll find popular time management literature that is anti-to-do list. Um, and for the life of me, I don't get it. Um, and everybody I know who gets a lot done and is extremely productive uh, in the entrepreneurial world is a list maker. Um, and, and everybody I've ever, uh, big names, I mean, Iacocca, um, spent a little time with him. If you read Trump, um, um, if you read the biography, the autobiography, somebody, I mean, everybody's a list maker, and everybody I've been around has been a list maker. Um, the daily activity chart is about checking off the things that you identify to do in your business every single day, and that's really a little accountability device. Um, my schedule is a little bit, I mean, I've, I've pretty much had the same approach to schedule now for about 12 years. And in the written material that comes with these tapes, I'll stick one in just so everybody sees it. Um, But my schedule is uh, about 16 months to 18 months at a time. And um, it's it's done on the computer. Yeah, I do know how to use one of the things. Amazing stuff. And it's got... The phone appointments and the actual, it's got everything except the appointments with myself. It's got everything but the project work. But it's got phone calls and trips and meetings and uh, phone appointments and days that are set aside in advance that Vicki then fills up with phone appointments, but I pre-block the time. 
and it gets redone about twice a month. Um, the conversation planner is simply one of those cards that's stuck up on a wall or a page in the legal pad um, that's kept uh, for each person that I have to have a lot of interaction with. So Vicki would be an example. Bill Glazer would be an example. That particular one, Dan, has been extremely helpful to me because, you know, I have a number of people just, you know, that I have to talk to. And instead of, you know, racking your brain of, oh, I was supposed to tell, you know, my secretary or my lawyer something, you know, I already have a little note in a in a little notebook, you know, with a file folder with them. So when I talk to them, I just open it up. And I learned that from you when I was going through your stuff. And so anybody who doesn't use that, I mean, it just saves a ton of time. Yeah, we had them in a formal to give credit where credit's due, it came from a guy by name of Larry Dolan, and Larry and I created a time management system called TEST, which was an acronym for Time Effectiveness Success Training, a play on EST, which also gives you dating. Um, and uh, the conversation planner I got from him, and I've used it ever since. I mean, it allows you, as you say, to relieve the memory. Because otherwise, you're sticking stuff in your head and saying, man, i got to remember the next time I talk to Pete to mention this. Well, it makes you tired to try to think like that. Yeah. I mean, and it plus, also... Uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a problem 20 years ago. It is now. Um, um, it, 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 and so it relieves the memory, and it eliminates the scrap of paper deal where you've got notes on what you want to talk to that person about in 18 different places. And it also is your delegation supervision list because the thing now, so if I, if I have a conversation with you about, I don't know, something. Uh, Coaching. Uh, retrieving something for me or getting me this piece of information. Well, that was on that page. And I'll just jot down next to it the date we talked about it and whatever the action was going to be, right? Lisa said she'd get this for me by next week. Well, it's still on the list the next time I talk to you. And it hasn't been checked out or marked through or colored through. And so I don't forget to hold you accountable for the stuff I gave to you. And it's a big mistake people make when delegating. What they tend to do is delegate down the black hole. Is they get it out of their hands, handed to somebody, but then they never check to see if that somebody actually did it. And could you take this a little bit further about, you know, how important it is to teach your staff to have one of these so they don't interrupt you 12 times a day? Well, that's sure. That's part of, I mean, you know, we could do a whole other program. But, yeah, it's part of now training the people who interact with you, be that staff, vendor, associate, even clients, um, that this is the way we work. And you don't email me 16 times a day every time you have a brain fart with 16 different questions. Or you don't parade in and out of my office all day long. You don't accost me again at a time and place where I'm trying to do something else. Um, and so, you know, the same cell phone problem we talked about is the, hey, can I have a minute? I got a quick question for you in the cafeteria while you're trying to eat lunch. Um, and instead, you cluster your questions and topics, and then you meet with me or talk with me on a scheduled basis, or you send one email that has the 12 items in it, not to me, of course, because I don't get it at all, but I mean, if you were using email, um, 
And so, yeah, these tools just has whatever ones that reflect the discipline that you're using, you now got to somehow get everybody around you on the same page. If not using the precisely the same tool, using at least precisely the same method. Um, and then last on your list was, was, was facts, which, you know, it's one of the two pieces of equipment ever invented I like. Um, and, uh, and I rely on it a lot for both inbound and outbound. So with all these tools, when do you schedule and actually plan your day? Well, a lot of mine are off the table, um, weeks and in some cases even months in advance. So, for example, this year it's very easy to plan the days in May because there's already no time left to plan. Um, I've already heard you lament about this. You've overscheduled yourself uh, for May. So, so May is going to be pretty easy. Uh, from here on out, because <laughs> there's no time. Uh, but uh, so in many cases, they're off the table, or large portions of them are off the table, weeks and even months in advance. Um, I tend to revisit my schedule before each week, and then I, I do the actual planning of what I'm going to do today, at the end of the day or evening yesterday, so that. I hit the ground running in the morning um, with the day totally planned, and um, and I'm pretty precise. I mean, I'm allocating time slots. I mean, today, of course, we had this from 3 to 6, um, but I started with an hour of writing, uh, working on one of my books from 6.30 to 7.30, and then I had... I don't remember now, but 13 or 14 things that had to be done before I left for a 10-15 appointment. And they ranged from, you know, one quick answer to a fax to getting a contract done or whatever. And um, they were arranged in priority order at the end of the day yesterday, uh, sitting there to be tackled. And I got all but one of them done, so that's not a bad ratio uh, today. And then I had an appointment. And... And so it's planned uh, the night before, and I do it for a practical reason, so I hit the ground running, and I do it for a psychological reason, so that the subconscious knows what we're going to be doing, and and to some extent gets to do some work in advance while I sleep. Um, and, and, of course, I write, so that's a direct application, but... It doesn't matter whether it would be your first meeting of the day or your first phone conversation of the day, whatever it is that you were doing. If the subconscious is pretty clear on what's going to be going on, um, it, it will have done some preparation uh, long before you're actually doing it physically, and then some percentage of what you're doing becomes deja vu, uh, and it happens then much quicker and much more efficiently and much more effectively. And one of the things that you do that practically nobody else that I know does is, like, when you call me, you'll actually say, Lee, I only have 12 minutes. Yeah, and I even do it with so with friends because I've conditioned myself to do it with everybody. And so I know if there's something I need to ask you or tell you, i got 12 minutes. And, and you're right on the button. And at the end of 12 minutes, you're gone. So, yeah, well, in many cases, I have to be. And the subconscious also has a pretty good clock. 
But, um, yeah, I do that now almost. It's not quite as sort of every time built in as turning the button on the overhead projector on and off fast, whereas I do that now every time. And if I want to not do it, it takes effort. Well, but, I try. But, but this is close. I mean, I, I usually... People, if they've had phone appointments scheduled, they've been told, and I still will start the conversation that way, and um, and pretty much do it all the time. You're you're right. And I've learned that from you, and it's been it's 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 a way of getting to the point. You know, I live in the South, and you know, a lot of times here in Virginia, people want to shoot the breeze. You know, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? And you know, it's like, okay, that's nice. Let's move along. Yeah, it's so. been very interesting. You know, in my in my coaching programs. Um, in Gold VIP and Platinum Plus, the months that we don't have meetings, they have 15-minute, actually 14-minute private calls with me, and they're pre-scheduled. So if Al Schwartz is in coaching, Al has the same. He's got from 10.15 to 10.30 every month on a pointed day. And he actually remembers it? <laughs> well, we remind him. Um, but they're, they're actually 14-minute time slots because they're back-to-back, and so... The fifteenth minute, the fifteenth minute is hang up on one and answer the next one. And most people, you know, when they start with me in those programs, can't conceive of how you can get anything done in fifteen minutes. And many of them, it's really trained them and conditioned them to be much more effective in the way they communicate with people on the phone. And so not only are they getting a lot done with me in 15 minutes, but they're getting a lot done with everybody else in 15 minutes. And and, and they know because they're back-to-back. I mean, at 14 minutes, I don't. we could be in mid-sentence talking about impending Armageddon, and I'm hanging up on them. And, you missed your opportunity. And so a lot of them have gotten so that just like me, they they kind of – They've planned. They got their three things they want to talk about in priority order. They have. They know that they're going to, This one is going to take four minutes, and this one's going to take seven minutes. They have a little clock working in their head, and and a number of them have gotten very, very, very good at it. Um, and you know, with any work, predetermining how long it should take uh, is a big step to getting it done in the time it should take. Most people approach all tasks. That's even the fallacy with the to-do list. I mean, if you've got a to-do list with 12 items on it, but you haven't predetermined how much time each one of those 12 things is going to get and is supposed to take, I guarantee you you're winding up at the end of the day with a whole bunch of items left undone on the to-do list. And, and folks, he's not kidding about this. On my notes, he we have talked about some of these questions. I said, here are some of the questions I'm going to ask you. And he has actually written down, you have four minutes for this, six minutes for this. <laughs> he, he's very serious about time management. All right. Here's a very important question, and that is, how do you keep unplanned situations, you know, other people from throwing you off schedule, you know, people showing up at the door, workmen that you weren't planning on or or, you know, someone in the office, you know, having a crisis. Howie Long, the guy that used to play for the Raiders, uh, you're not a fo- football fan, but football fans would know him. And he's on, you might know him because he's on the Fox show on some Sunday mornings during foot- football season. He sits next to Terry Bradshaw. Anyway, Howie was a very physical uh, player, violent. And Howie was asked when his daughter beat, 
began dating, how he was going to, you know, keep her from having problems. And he said, the first boy, the first guy that shows up at the door, I'm going to shoot him. And I figure the word will get around. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, I would think. There's almost none of these problems that a bullet won't cure. Um, so, you know, other people throwing off your schedule. I mean, one part of that answer is how much of it you tolerate and sanction uh, and make exceptions for versus how tough you are on repelling it. And so the whole thing in the No BS Time Management book about time vampires, I mean, that, you know, that person who's showing up the door with, I only need a minute to ask you this quick question. If you let them do it, um, you're sanctioning the behavior, and they'll continue to do it. And you've got to be enough of an SOB to say, nope, I don't even have a minute. Go away. We, we have a scheduled time to talk tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Put it on the list. And, and, you know, people say, well, it took you as long to say that as it would have. Yeah, but the behavior continues. And pretty soon they're at your door three times, four times, five times a day. And, and so that's part of it. Um, the, the other thing is that Kissinger had this great line that, um, um, and keep in mind, this is Kissinger of the Nixon White House uh, during Watergate. Um, he said there, there could be no more crisis this week um, because I'm fully booked. That's good. And, you know, if you're fully booked, then no one can throw off your schedule because there's no schedule left to throw off. I mean, time can be wasted or abused only only if it's available to be wasted or abused. And so if the supply doesn't exist, um, then the waste and the abuse literally can't occur. And, you know, it's the if the person showed up at your door and said, hey, I only need a minute or two to ask you a question, and in 30 seconds you had a telephone appointment with, now you pick whoever you view as extremely important, your number one client who pays you a fortune every year, or the President of the United States, or the new Pope, um, um, or your divorce attorney, or, you know, who, who, whoever it is who, who, like, at this current moment is the VIP of all VIPs in your life of critical importance to you. And you know they were calling in 30 seconds and you were waiting for their call and the guy showed up at the door and said, I need two or three minutes. Would you brush them off? Yes. Well, so why isn't the appointment you have with yourself to do X every bit as valuable and important to be safeguarded as is the appointment you would have with the Pope or the President? And when you view it that way, you get to be kind of tough about this. Um, and so, you know, my days are, you ask about the, the, the planning, and it's the, usually it's the night before or the afternoon before. But my days actually aren't, aren't, aren't scheduled in the sense that you've got a page in the appointment book and you've got our meeting at 3 o'clock and you've got, lunch at 11, 
and a couple of phone calls written in. Uh, my days are scripted. And, and, and the difference is that the whole day is scripted. And so the 13 or 14 things that I did this morning before I left for a 10-15 appointment, they were all listed with the number of minutes it was going to take to do them, assigned to them, totaling up to the number of minutes in the time block made available to them. And consequently, any interruption, any because every one of the minutes was, was, was allocated. There was no unallocated minutes. So if I let anything disrupt or interrupt that, something in that script isn't going to happen. There's a direct and clear trade-off. Something or someone is going to get shorted or cheated today or bumped to the back of the line if I let somebody bump to the front of the line. So my days are scripted in some cases to the minute and certainly in little hunks of minutes. And I know just as giving a speech or a seminar and I don't know if you do it to the degree that I do or not, but, I mean, if I've got 60 overheads for the day, the sheet behind every overhead has the time on it of where I'm supposed to be when I hit that overhead. Right. So if, I'm, if it says 2.10 and it's 2.30, I know I'm in trouble. If it says 2.10 and it's 1.30... Um, I know I'm going to come up short, and so I'm constantly assessing and making little adjustments to stay on schedule um, so that you don't have a seminar day where you have three hours of material left over or you're supposed to end at 5 o'clock and at 2.30 you say, oh, shit, we're out of material. I guess everybody leaves early. And, and, I, mean, and I do the same thing with my day. So I'm constantly assessing and adjusting, if necessary, where I am on the work list against where we are on the clock. Um, and so for most days, there is no time left to be wasted or abused because I have pre-assigned it all, if not before this, then at least the day before. And as you say, all my appointments have end times. So the phone appointments are all booked with end times. So, and it's amazing how people have to be trained to get this. Uh, but they get it. Um, clients and vendors alike, my doctor, my attorney, my CPA, they've all, the first couple of times, they haven't got it. You know, Vicki has booked a 10 o'clock appointment for them and told them the appointment is 10 to 10.15. And at 10.15, they are, like, still talking. And I'm going, sorry, it's over, because I got a 10.18. And we didn't get what we needed to covered, so you need to go back to Vicki and get another phone appointment scheduled. And it's probably going to be about three weeks from now. Sayonara, i got to go. That'll teach them. Now, the, the, some of them are pretty dull about this, and it's taken three or four times, you know, for them to get it. But then they get it. And now that they got it, Everything works great with each one of them. And, again, as you said, I typically remind them at the start of the call, too. By the way, now, uh, glad we're on the phone, and we're on the phone five minutes late because this was a 10 o'clock appointment, and it's now 10.05, and it's over at 10.15. So that means we got 10 minutes. 
and my personal in-person appointments are the same, uh, be it meeting with one person or meeting with five person. Everybody like knows ahead of time, here's how long the meeting is. Not, we're going to be here, you know, forever uh, until the skin is falling off of our skeleton. Um, and, and the project and work appointments that I set with myself are the same. They have end times. And see, my belief is, again, it's sort of linked to my direct response work. You know, one of the things that makes, that is the distinction between direct response advertising and normal advertising is an offer. And the further distinction within the existence of an offer is a deadline. And so true direct response people will always tell you if there's no deadline, if there's no expiration date, there is no offer. Similarly to me, if there's no end time, it's not an appointment. See, most people think an appointment has a beginning time and no end. And consequently, they're not, they're not going to be exceptionally productive. But to me, it's not an appointment unless it has a start time and an end time. Well, since we've been talking about, you know, keeping unplanned situations, you know, people throwing you off from schedule, but let's talk about, you know, real emergencies and real crises. You know, somebody's been in a car accident. Well, you know, you do, everybody pretty much knows my house on fire story from the marketing speech. I mean, I was pretty reluctant to let that interfere with my telephone conversation. <laughs> Yeah, look, the first thing about, quote, quote, real emergencies and real crises, and again, I was using the same methods that I'm using now at times when I was involved in businesses where crisis and emergency was, you know, the norm. Um, The first thing is most people operate with an overly broad definition of emergency, in an overly broad definition of crisis. Yeah. And, you know, in a renegade millionaire system and in some of my other stuff, I mean, I, I say, you know, the big principle is that nothing is ever as bad or incidentally as good uh, as it first appears to be. And the corollary to that is is that very few things are as urgent as they first appear or as other people uh, think that they are. Um, and so I think you start by being more critical about what is an emergency and what isn't an emergency and what is a crisis and what is not a crisis. Um, uh, I told the super conference, I think I told the story of the guy trying to get to John Wayne in his office and badgering his secretary and badgering his secretary with call after call after call. You know, she's finally interrupting him and accosting him and saying so-and-so from the studio is called back now every hour, and he says it's urgent. And John Wayne's answer was, well, the next time he calls back, ask him who it's urgent for, him or me. That's a great story. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrific story because... You know, just because it's urgent to them doesn't necessarily mean it's urgent to you. I, I, I tell people, I, I've often told this story, and 
usually the women in the audience cringe over this story, by the way, but and, and I'll just do the shortest version possible, but uh, for a number of years when I was a kid, my, my parents were in the Amway business, and my father's preset schedule was uh, three days a week for three hours in the afternoon. He went to his telephone desk in the basement office and made his customer telephone calls, and will be the person who opened that door, marched down the steps, and interfered with him in those three hours. It was just not an advisable thing to do. And um, I was in the barn and got my arm between a wall and a horse's ass and was dumb enough to try and push the horse's butt by bracing my elbow against the wall. Oh, dear. Uh, and snapped the wrist. Um, and I go into the house with this thing bleeding and, you know, some of it literally pierced through the skin. And my mother, who does not, who never drove a car, um, is, you know, beside herself and is on her way to get dead to, and he, we're about halfway through his three-hour time block. And I'm saying, no, 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 you know, just let's get a rag, some ice, do something, but we only got about an hour and a half and he'll emerge. I'll wait. Because the wrist and the pain of the wrist was nothing compared to the pain waiting for disturbing him, uh, which I knew. But uh, she insisted, and he came up and looked and said, put a rag and some ice on it, and I'll be finished in an hour, and then we'll go to the hospital. And people are, you know, again, I, I usually see women mostly cringing when they hear this story. But, of course, if you stop to think about it, what happens when you get to the hospital and you go to the emergency room with a broken wrist? Uh, they put ice on it, and they wrap it in a, in a rag, and I think we sat there for four hours and some odd minutes before anybody saw us. I imagine today it's at least that bad, if not worse, in most emergency rooms. And so he was absolutely correct. Um, now, he wouldn't have been, obviously, if, you know, I'd had my head stomped in and walked in the house with one eyeball and one testicle in my hand. And, you know, but, uh, but I mean, a broken wrist is a broken wrist, you know? And, and I mean, he's, he's, he's absolutely, or was absolutely co co correct. And, um, and I never forgot the lesson. Um, you know, it's a real mistake. Um to let yourself be stampeded, um, whether that's into a decision or into an action or into setting aside your, your day's script in favor of someone else's emergency, urgency, or crisis um, without really determining that there is no other option. Um, I was I was running a company that was in financial crisis like every minute. General Gazette. Yeah, and so you do, by the way, sort of become a little immune to it after a period of time. I mean, I think in a 24-month period of time, I believe we had a positive checking account balance for two days. Um, <laughs> what a stressful experience. Um, and um, uh, there was a day when at 10 o'clock in the morning, our 
our only vendor, uh, I started to say main vendor, but our only vendor for the vinyl albums in which audio cassettes go. Anybody on the call probably, even though we switched to CDs for the most part, you've undoubtedly got these things on your bookshelf. And um, we're pretty much, we like got to have these, so we can't produce anything. And this vendor, to whom we were woefully behind in paying and had had over the last month a couple NSF checks, and, uh, for good reason, the president of this company had finally just apparently lost his patience, and he let our comptroller know that we were cut off. And not only couldn't we get anything on credit, we couldn't even get anything on cash until we paid the entire outstanding balance. And then we were going to be on cash. Uh, and the comptroller is immediately, I don't remember what I was doing at the time, but I know that whatever it was was interrupted by the comptroller in my office um, having a fit because this meant that the world was over and, you know, the cataclysm had occurred and we might as well burn the building down and send everybody home because life on this planet is over. And... Um, uh, at the time, you know, I said, hey, the rest of the day is planned here. You know, I've got stuff to do. And nothing I do at the moment is going to change this. So go go about your business. I'll go about my business. And at the end of the day, uh, i got time at 6 o'clock to figure out what to do about this. And, and I know he was just frustrated beyond all belief. He wasn't around much longer as a comptroller either. But... Um, and at the end of the day, I figured out what to do about it, and I did treat it as a relative emergency. I rearranged my next day, got on an airplane, and flew to Minneapolis, and was waiting for the guy when he got to his office to negotiate. But there was nothing I was going to do that minute, and, 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 and it was probably better to let the guy cool anyway. And so, I, you know, this whole somebody appears in front of you, physically or by phone or fax or email or a picture they send out to your cell phone or any of the other um, electronic devices that they communicate with and try and stampede you into setting aside your entire script and all your intentions for the day and, and jumping into theirs. And that really is what it's about, is it's going to be yours or it's going to be theirs. And you're going to defend your turf uh, and get everybody to function the way you want them to function, or you're going to have no turf. And there's not much room in between. You know, Dan, I've I've watched you over the years, and you can even stay very super productive even when going through, you know, like when you were recovering from your own divorce a few years ago. And even when you had a lot of financial problems, um, I guess the question is, how do you stick to those objectives and plans even when you do feel overwhelmed with personal problems? Because, you know, a lot of people allow their personal problems to take precedent over their business. It's like everything has to fall apart because something has gone wrong in their personal life. You know, I think there's a couple of things. I think, first of all, if you are a person of reasonable integrity, and you have made commitments, um, then you keep those commitments pretty much regardless of what's going on. And, um, you know, personal, family, 
problems are certainly the most difficult and the most challenging that anyone faces. Uh, but one of the prices of being an entrepreneur that everybody in the entrepreneur's life does need to understand is there is nobody for us to call and take personal days. Um, and, and the clients, the customers, the people at the other end of our process um, who rely on us, and in some cases who we have literal contractual relationships with, not just, not just handshake commitments, um, uh, they've got to be served regardless. Um, and so, again, the less, the less unscripted, unscheduled, uncommitted time you have, the less of a, a, a big uh, amount of angst uh, how to deal with this is because you have no choice but to deal with it. Um, uh, uh, Reverend Schuller has this, has this quote. I'm not going to get it right now. It's in one of my books that um, even on the morning uh, after his wife's death, the farmer must still milk the cows. And that's part of being an entrepreneur. Um, given that, then, the most important skill, I think, is, uh, and again, I got it from Maltz, from Psycho-Cybernetics, psych- there are other sources, and other people use different terminology, but is to compartmentalize. And so, I mean, I literally have a little, you know, kind of wall of little lockers in my head. And so, whatever, each thing has its own little box. And whatever the situation is, it can be put away in that box and the door closed and open the next box and totally focus on that box and go back and open the uh, the other box. And so you essentially sort of schedule your misery just like you would schedule uh, anything else. Um, in the, uh, in the uh, autobiography that seems to be the project from hell, first getting it written, and now every vendor involved seems to have lost their mind in the last three weeks, but I talk about um, um, uh, a suicide in, in several different ways and you know there's a there's a line somebody said is well you know you can always kill yourself later and, and you know they're they're right about that uh, it's not so you can be miserable later you can open the box of the personal angst of illness or divorce or financial disaster or whatever pretty much any time and go in there and paw around in it you don't need to let it spill out all over everything and take control any more than you let anything else spill out all over everything and take control. But all that is a a conscious decision that you've made about your life. And a lot of people have never, never been, you know, their parents have never taught them this. Society doesn't tell anybody this is acceptable to do. So this is... Well, society teaches the exact opposite. Exactly. I mean, you're almost a bad guy. Yeah if you don't fall apart when somebody else is having a crisis? Well, you know, I guess part of it that I got, the cow thing, um, you know, when I was a kid, we were involved with racehorses. And just like the cow, you know, the horses have to be fed twice a day. And the horses' stalls have to be cleaned. And they have to be taken care of. And it doesn't really much matter whether you're sick 
or somebody in your family is sick, or your house burned down the night before, or your truck was repossessed, or your wife left you, or it's a country western song, and all those things happen. You've, um, that was a joke. I know, um, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, there you go. Now we go. Um, the, uh, the, you, you know, the horse still has to be fed, and he has to be fed at 7 o'clock in the morning. And, I mean, so, like, I got that. And, I mean, I think it's a matter of, you know, integrity, commitments to others and commitments to yourself, uh, that if you are that, that if you are going to declare yourself an entrepreneur and you are going to enter into relationships where others rely on you, be they your employees or your, or your vendors or your clients or your banker, or, you know, then, then, then you've got to face the fact that you live differently than your wife's brother, uh, who's an executive at Motorola and can call in sick and has 14 personal days a year. Um, and, and, and if you're not willing to do that, then by all means, hang up the entrepreneur sign before you get yourself in a position where you really do some damage and go get a job. Well, I know both of us as speakers, you know, we've talked many times, it doesn't make any difference if we're sick. We still go. Or, you know, if something Look, is happening. Death and family. Death and family. We, well, both of us, or if somebody's dying, we still go because that's our integrity. We've given our word. And there are no days off. And I find that on a subconscious level, because I don't have time to be sick, that even if I felt bad, by the time I get there, I'm really not that sick anymore. Absolutely. Because my my subconscious knows you can't be sick. Well, see, I, you know, I do believe, I mean, you and I both believe that essentially the way people think what goes on inside their heads, the vacuums that exist in their life, all have a great deal to do with what's attracted into it. And a lot of people attract drama and crisis and emergency and tragedy because they have room for it. And, again, if you make the dead air go away and there's no room for it, then Kissinger's line becomes real. And you tend not to attract it into your life because there's no place to put it. Most people are, just have too much space. Right. Well, let's, let's talk about um, your daily regimen. Um, I know one of the things you do every day, you know, I know there's one thing you do every single day. Um, what are some of the other things you do, and, and, and well, how do you do them? I've had as many as eight. I have less now. Um, One I'm thing you do every day, by the way, is write. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, me, I mean, specific me. to talk about business, uh, I'm, I'm down to two that, that, that occur without deviation every single day, except when on true vacation. When, I mean, a total non-work day, but every single work day. And that uh, includes Christmas? <laughs> um, no. Um, no, although I, do, I usually write on Christmas morning because... In every environment I've been in, I'm up before everybody else, even the kids. But, um, but yeah, one is I write. And specifically, I write for one hour every day for my projects because I do a lot of copywriting for clients. And if I did not do that, the client work would totally take over. Um, and I would never write anything for myself. 
So even this morning, for example, and I leave in two days on a little trip, and this week's very time pressured. Um, uh, but some things that certainly could have been justified being on an A-list and could have sucked up that other hour this morning are going to wait till next week because that hour is blocked out beforehand, and then there's only so much other time available to assign. So every morning, and on the rare times I don't do it first thing in the morning, I, I plug it in some other time during the day, but uh, pretty much every morning and certainly every day, there's an hour of writing on my books um, and my information products. And, um, um, and, and, and the other thing that still uh, lingers is doing at least one proactive thing every day to create future business, um, which is reaching the point for me that it's laughable, but still... I won't take that one off the daily activity chart until I'm ready to do no business. Um, so every single day, even on a day, for example, like tomorrow is a consulting day, so I'll be with a client from 8.30 in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I'll, I'll write from, from 7 to 8 and then go get them. But when we finish at 4, I will go do something, some one thing, respond to a fax, um, uh, uh, give somebody a media contact to follow up on, uh, do something that primes the pump for future business that is not about the present-day dollar but is about a future dollar. Um, and so those are the two things. Uh, and as I say, at one time there was eight, so I really don't need a chart anymore to check these off the because the, I'm down to two but and uh, and I've been pretty whatever you want to say dogmatic uh, religious about uh, uh, both of those uh, for well over a decade and a half um, and uh, consequently you know a book gets done every year where some people are still trying to get the book done that they started 20 years ago and the newsletters get done every month uh, and pretty much get done on time. And uh, and the pipeline stays full. Um, and there's never been, you know, a shortage of business. Uh, sort of correlated to this is, I, you know, I've long refused never to have, even in those times of extreme crisis or emergency, never to have a totally unproductive day. Um Unless, again, it's a, it's a designated non-work day. It's a goof-off day. Um, but, but I, you know, if it's midnight um, and it's been unproductive, I'll still I'll go down there at five minutes to midnight and get something uh, that I view as productive within my definitions of productivity done before the day's end. Oh, by the way, Dan, um, on February 24th in 2005, you sent me, or Vicki sent me, what is called the Revised Kennedy Schedule, abbreviated. The schedule goes all the way through December 29th. And literally, folks, on the schedule that he sent me, and the reason he does it because, you know, he and I do some work together, one, I know not to call you on certain days. I know where you are. And I'm sure this saves you a ton of time 
with, you know, people who are in your circle who need to know where you are. Saves me time, saves them time. Saves other people a lot of frustration. When you totally take days or blocks of time off of the calendar and people know it, then they're not, you know, bugged. Gee, I called, I left a message, I faxed you, and it's three days have gone by and I haven't heard from you. And they're like hot and bothered. But if they know that entire week, you're not looking at anything. And so you actually get my schedule schedule. Some clients get what we call a schedule advisory every so often that is not as as detailed as what you've seen, but essentially gives them warnings of time periods when I'm going to be incommunicado and not looking at anything. Right. I mean, there's a little line here. I will be incommunicado 3-7 through 3-25. Advise clients there will be no responses to inbound communications from me during this period. I mean, that's right here on your yeah. list. Yeah, and better that they all know. Well, you're the only person I've ever known to do this, and it's been. I always have it tacked up here on my 2C bulletin board because I know if I need to get in touch with you or I want to talk to you, all I have to go do is look at this, and I know approximately, you know, where you are. Yeah, and we, you know, I've, and of course you go back to the time when I was traveling a lot. I mean, we, it, it, it was far worse than it is now, where there would be extended periods that everything was going to stack up. And I always made a practice of of continually advising people uh, both to uh, avoid them being frustrated, to get them, to encourage them to get their button gear and deal with things beforehand, um, and to reduce the stress on me and on staff um, of them having unrealistic expectations uh, of when they were going to be communicated with. Um, you know, Peter Drucker wrote about distinctions, distinctions between efficiency and effective. Um, how do you draw that line? Um, well, Drucker's work, although slow going, of course, is well worth reading. Uh, but in this context, um, you know, efficiency is, has to do with speed and getting something done in the shortest possible time. Um, and and effectiveness is, of course, getting the best possible results, and sometimes they go together and sometimes they don't. And so, for example, you know, I would argue that the way I work with scheduled phone appointments is both. It's efficient and it's effective. Um, It's efficient for both parties, uh, completely eliminates phone tag, Um, and, and and it's efficient because every phone appointment has an end time. Um, and it's effective because I'm in, not totally without exception, but for the most part, I am in a, an appropriate place, an appropriate environment uh, to deal with the telephone appointments. I've had an opportunity to prepare, and I have the information in front of me that I need to make those calls uh, and to respond to what's going to come up on those calls. So it's it's efficient and effective. Email, the way most people use it, is extremely efficient and, for the most part, extremely ineffective. It's efficient because it's quick and cheap. 
You don't have to go put a piece of paper in a fax machine. You don't have to address an envelope. You don't have to fill out a FedEx air bill. Um, you just type and push a button. And some people, the real sophisticated techno geeks, can dictate directly into the thing, and so they can talk and push a button. And so it's extremely efficient. For the most part, it's extremely ineffective. Um, it, it's, it's the least impactful form of written communication arriving at the other end. Um, in fact, I was listening to talk radio while I was coming back from an appointment, and J.D. Hayworth, who's a congressman from Phoenix, um, who I like, was guest hosting on the show. He said that um, uh, in his office, he was talking about communicating with your congressman. He said in his office, um, faxes have the most weight. Phone calls have the second most weight, and email has the least weight. And in fact, for the most part, the email never gets looked at by him. Um, and he especially dislikes it because people do it quickly without giving it much thought. In some cases, you'll get three or four emails from the same person, even in the same day. And now you'd have to stitch those together to get the person's complete thought. And the faxes, he can scoop up and take out with him, shove them in a briefcase, work with them on an airplane, and make notes on them without anybody on his staff having to download or transcribe anything for them. And so, you know, for all of for for all sorts of reasons, including now spam filters and stuff that gets through, it's an extremely ineffective means of communication from the standpoint of impact. From the standpoint of effectiveness for the person at the sending and receiving end for you or me, it's ineffective because it opens the doors to too much junk communication, badly thought out communication, uh, what I call brain farts. You know, the person thinks, oh, here's an idea, here's a question, let's send Lee an email, and there it goes. And you now, you know, your thing says you've got mail, and you've got 520 pieces of mail. Um, and so it's not an effective communication tool, and it's becoming less effective with each passing day, but it is efficient. Um, and so I think you have to, like, take everything you do and every tool you use and every procedure you have and every rule that you impose, and you have to have some standards. You have to hold it up and evaluate it. And one of them is, you know, is it efficient, but am I trading off effectiveness for efficiency? Is it, is it haste makes waste rather than productive haste? Um, and, and is it something I should be doing at all? Is it something I should allow in my world, you know, at all? And most people don't think in terms of sort of definitional standards. Um, and so, you know, it, for example, we've been talking about productivity the entire time, and if you ever want to have some fun with people in a coaching environment or or a seminar or, or a one-on-one -on -one consultation, you start to ask them definition questions. Like, you want to be more productive. Well, what is your definition of productive? Just like somebody said, well, I want to be rich. Well, define that for me. I don't know. And for the most part, they haven't thought through a definition. And so they're trying to be more productive without having to find what productivity is. And that's, I call that playing blind archery. You know, you're running around shooting arrows at no target. And you might hit it, well, well, you know, but, but the odds aren't real good. Isn't there some guru out there saying shoot and then aim? Yeah. 
Uh, that's uh, Tom Peters, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and it used to be a joke, and now people are teaching it. I mean, I don't and, get that at all. Um, Shoot and then aim. You know, when when I when I was getting my my harness racing license to drive in real races at a real racetrack, you have to drive at a bunch of county fairs. And the county fair tracks are, in many cases, the thing is only functional for the week that the fair is there. And they stick up like temporary posts. And I mean, it's really a pretty ugly, chaotic environment. And one of the things about it is you never like quite know where they're going to put the finish line. And I quickly discovered it was a good idea when you were out there warming a horse up to make sure that you got a fix on where the damn finish line was. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. Because otherwise you could, like, stop short. You could stop driving. And it, it's never made any sense to me to be trying to hit an invisible target. And so, you know, if people do create definitions for themselves, then they have the equivalent of a litmus test. You know, they have the ability to hold something up to it and see, you know, does this pass the test? I mean, I've long had my productivity definition as the use of your time, talent, energy, and resources in a way that moves you measurably closer to your meaningful goals. And so... You can tell whether your boss, the thing you're going to do for the next 12 minutes is truly productive or not. Now, measuring it against that definition. You know, um, Dan, in some of your writings, you've said that the ultimate liberation for the entrepreneur isn't delegation, but it's actually replacement. Explain to us what you mean by that. Well, there's a... Uh, I've got it written down somewhere. It came off of a T-shirt or a bumper sticker, you know, um, that 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 I'm trying to live my life without being there. And, <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, that really is what the entrepreneur ought to be about, especially since by sort of nature. Um, and conditioning, most entrepreneurs aren't really good managers. And so delegation is sort of done out of necessity, um, and, and replacement is done more out of strategy and accomplishment. And so that's literally when Ken Varga, uh, who some of the people on the call will know, and Ken's built and sold a lot of successful companies and run a lot of successful companies in the largest uh, company in the country, insuring nurses, for example. And Ken always says that if I start a business and it still requires my attention on a day-to-day -day basis, 36 months later, it's not a business, it's a job. Huh. And, you know, he's about got it right. Um, and so... Um, you, you really want to aspire to and be moving in the direction of and strategically developing your business so that in place after place after place and function after function after function, you get to literally replace yourself, not just delegate work that you then must supervise on a day-to-day -day basis. And when you do it, you got to get out of the way. You can't be... You can't be the ghost 
of supervision past, you know, hanging over the person's shoulder and micromanaging what they do. Uh, replacement really has to be replacement. Um, in the relationships that I have that constitute that for me, I keep in mind the political term um, of advise and consent. And so I try and advise and consent, not supervise, not meddle, and not micromanage. Um, and, it, and it wasn't easy to, to, to uh, learn, um, but, you know, I've gotten good at that, too. And so there are a number of relationships, and people are sometimes puzzled by it. Um, I'll get weird looks sometimes, for example, with the horse racing business because we'll buy, I mean, we'll spend serious money and we'll buy horses. And I mean, I, my trainer and, and some of the horses' partner will come to me and say, here's, you know, five we're looking at, and here's the story on each one, and I'll ask questions, and I may raise questions, uh, and ultimately I will always end the conversation with, and uh, do what you think best, and I'll be out of the way. And I make it a point never to second-guess that decision, because if I'm going to second-guess it or I'm going to micromanage it, then it's unfair to the other person, and I really ought to just go do it myself. Well, that sort of ties in with my next question, which is, um, is your good enough good enough part of this effectiveness and efficiency discussion, um, you know, when, when can you get into your mind that good enough is good enough? You know, I can now call creative hold to this and move on. Um, I think the, that you, from a time standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, you've got to face this. And you've got to be very situational about it. And so, you know, just for example, um, material I'm getting ready to package up and deliver by FedEx to a new client who's getting work product from me for the first time, I'm going to be um, a little more careful about um, its appearance and its organization and the quantity of typos and all of that that I am with a client I've been working with for three years who 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 uh, who is now who gets me who we have sort of a rhythm and who is likely to be more forgiving uh, because he's gotten good results and gotten good results and now it's about the results it's not about the fancy folder that it comes in and but that may make a 15-minute difference to me today of getting something out the door, and 15 minutes to me is a lot. So um, certain information products, you know, I mean, the product that is going to go on a bookstore shelf um, uh, and be looked at by media reviewers and by other publishers who are going to make decisions about the next book deal has to be edited a lot more carefully than the self-published book that is only going to go to my own raving fans and is never going to sit on a shelf and is never going to be seen by the book critic at Time Magazine 
and is not going to have any impact one way or the other on my next commercial book deal. Um, and so, you know, good enough is good enough. One pass. Some sales letters are first drafts. Some sales letters are 20 drafts. And they can't all be 20 drafts. Or they shouldn't be anyway. Um, you know, if you, you know, if you're going to have a lot of output. So, um, ironclad perfectionism versus situational perfectionism just absolutely kills productivity. Well, we were talking about the tools that you use in managing yourself and your time, and the last one was about the facts, and you've you've talked a lot about that already, but just tell us why you're just so in love with the facts. Well, I mean, it, it has the impact of it, ha- it has the impact of it. It, it. it has the immediacy of a telephone call or an email, but it's a more manageable document. Uh, from my standpoint, it's infinitely more manageable. Nobody has to download it. Nobody has to transcribe for me. I get it the way it was sent. Um, uh, at the other end, it, it has more impact. And at the other end, as communication comes to me, it forces a person to think before they communicate. See, if you take their inbound calls, most people jump on the phone to call you at impulse without having thought through the conversation. And in many cases, the conversation can't be completed because they didn't think it through. So now one conversation is going to be two conversations. Or worse, the email we've already talked about. The fact seems to slow them down. When they are going to put it on a piece of paper, they treat it like a letter, uh, but it's quicker. So I still think it's the best form of uh, business-to-business, vendor-to-client form of of communication that there is. Um, Okay. You know, um, since you're... Let's let's say I know you work more than a six-hour day, but let's just take a six-hour day is more productive than most people's forty-hour weeks because of the control you use. Let's just talk a little bit how you personally work. So let's just take take a day on how you personally work and just sort of run through it, you know, for our listeners so they get sort of a, you know, a visual of the Dan Kennedy in action. Well, the first thing I do differently than a lot of people is I get up. I mean, that's, you know, that's... <laughs> and you get up very early, you know, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, but, I'm, but, you know, so sort, sort of the big things are, um, uh, again, I, you know, I exercise a great deal of control over how people communicate with me and how I communicate with other people so that there's not constant disruption and distraction and interruption. I mean, I use the facts more than any other method. Uh, I do not own a cell phone. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.